Hey, it's Laura. Welcome to Tell Me Something True. So people tell today's guest, Mary Laura Philpot, that her writing is like having a conversation with her. And being a huge fan of her work before we talked, I can now say that that's totally true. She is as satisfying to read as she is to talk to. So much so that when we were recording this episode, I forgot we were taping which is one of my favorite things about doing this work when it happens. You may have heard about Mary Laura, and yes, it is both names, through her first book, I Miss You When I Blink. It was a huge hit, a bestseller that was also a finalist for the Southern Book Prize, and her new memoir and essays is called Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives. Amazing title. It was named an editor's choice by the New York Times Book Review and one of the best books of 2022 by NPR. It had me laughing and crying and nodding my head like a fool as another woman and a mother who is also solidly in midlife. There are almost no places anymore where contemporary authors can sit down and discuss their work. And it's really important to me and everyone here at TMST that we hold that space If you care about these conversations, I hope you'll become a TMSD Plus member. Our paid members are the engine behind this project. The membership helps us pay for the cost of making the show and keeping it ad-free and keeping it coming your way. You can find the link in the show notes to become a member or just head on over to tmstpod.com. Five, 10, or 20 bucks a month makes a huge difference. And with every episode we post a Spotify playlist because it's fun. So check those out. All right, here is Mary Laura Philpot. I'm so happy to have you. I'm delighted to be doing this. This is fun. This is like, I mean, you you and I were just talking about book tour and how it's so strange and it feels like being living in a little space pod traveling through the universe all alone. Um, that part of book tour is over for me. And now I'm back home and I'm doing this more, much more humanely paced, yeah. small amounts of travel and small amounts of, you know, an interview here and there from my own home. So this feels like pure luxury to be sitting in my house talking to you, just like having this friendly conversation with no rush. This is delightful. I have your book right here. I loved it so much. So this was my, you know, entree to your writing. And it's just, it met me exactly where I am in my life. I was curious, though, I have an idea of what might have happened, but how did this collection come to be? Like, what was the the seed? Yeah, it came about, it was brewing at a time when I was insistent that I was not going to do another essay collection. I had just come back from touring for I Miss You When I Blink, which is an essay collection. I mean, that's what it is. It's thematically linked there. They have a, a, you know, sort of an umbrella narrative over all those essays, but that's an essay collection. I came home and I was like, I'm not doing that again. That was fun. I want to do something different. And for a period of several months, I sort of sat here staring out the window going, well, I guess I've had my last good idea. It's all over. It was a good run. (laughs) You know, I got a book out of it. Guess I got to go find a new craft or trade (laughs) that I can do now. Um, 
But as I do always and always have in my life, I was writing through some things I was going through and also still trying to make a living. You know, I I can get paid by selling a single essay here and there. So I was writing about some things that I'd been feeling for a while about what does it mean to be middle-aged? Like, what does it mean to be at this tipping point in your life where a lot of stuff that was stable has begun to destabilize and you're about to go down kind of a twisty part of life's roller coaster and you don't know what's coming? What does it What does it mean to live with suddenly more uncertainty than you've had before for so many reasons, big and small? So I was writing mm-hmm. about that stuff. I was also going through uh, kind of a reckoning with a lot of the stuff that comes with um, any any turning point or breaking point or starting ever point in life. So for example, at middle age, um, my parents were getting older and the roles were reversing there, which felt really strange. And that was on my mind a lot. Um, My work was on my mind. My kids were on my mind because they weren't really kids anymore. They had turned into these teenagers with whole Mm -hmm. lives and futures and plans, and they were touring colleges. And I was really reckoning on a a regular basis with the, the fact that they are leaving like they, the, the leaving process is now beginning. Like the countdown has started. So I was beginning to write about a lot of that stuff. And I think I probably would have ended up writing, despite my insistence that I was not writing an essay collection, I probably would have written an essay collection about turning points in life where the momentum's going one way and then, woo, you take a turn and it's going a different way and everything feels uncertain and unstable. But then something happened that that basically was a before and after moment in my life where nothing was ever the same. I couldn't think about anything the same way anymore. And it turned this from what would have been a linked essay collection into more of a memoir and, and gave it more of a narrative thread. And that is um, a health crisis in my family. My teenage son, the older of my two teenagers, um, woke up early one morning and got out of bed to go get a glass of water and within a few steps, he just fell and hit the floor completely unconscious. And my husband and I woke up, it was like four o'clock in the morning to this sound. It was the sound of his body hitting the floor again and again and again. He was having a seizure. And, um, you know, we had this one really long, really bizarre day that began with that and and standing over his body going, what is happening? He's unconscious. I've got to call 911, ride in the ambulance, go to the hospital. By the end of that really long day, we knew he had epilepsy. And he has a, a particular kind of epilepsy that comes on in adolescence and never goes away. So he has something that will be with him that will change his life and in some ways threaten his life mm-hmm. forever. And this is the kid who made me a mom. Yeah. So- my whole worldview changed. The, everything I was thinking about, about, whoa, things get unstable. There's a lot of uncertainty, just kicked into like 10 times higher gear. So what would have been probably a, an essay collection with a lot of the same themes it currently has became that, but also a memoir about this me character, this mom character facing the, the worst threat she could imagine, something coming for the life of her child. Yeah. I figured it was about the the incident with your son. When I read the end of the One Might Wonder essay, it's about, yeah. about your son having epilepsy, your daughter having asthma, and other conditions, health mm-hmm. conditions in mm-hmm. your family. And you, you um, say at the end of the essay, everyone has something. You don't get to choose what your thing is, whether you get just one thing or more, 
or how your thing will respond to your efforts to manage it. Yeah. The reason I jumped out of my bed is I have in my book a whole chapter. Well, it's a chapter called This Is Your Thing. Yes. And it was about me reconciling with the fact that alcohol was my thing. Like, I didn't choose it. I can't make it go away. And yeah, and and even if you do an A plus 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 job handling your thing, you are not rewarded with any level of control over anyone else's thing or other future things that may come for you. Like there's no there's no like great job, gold medal handling your thing. You're now exempt from things. Totally. Which is Ugh. just so frustrating. Yeah, it's frustrating. It's every I mean it's this is what I view or what I felt was just this, the through line of your book is just, I don't have control. Yeah. No, and I, have I don't. All these feelings about it. Mm-hmm. We don't have control. And I mean, you, you, you witness me, this me character through bomb shelter fighting that, like in the beginning being like, no, 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 I'm going to get control. And you see all the ways I try to get control. And some of them are are just absurd. And some of them are sort of heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. But what I'm working my way toward is accepting. I do not have control, which is a bummer. And I hate it because I like control, but accepting it and saying, okay, well, I, I guess I just really, I don't have control. It takes the struggle out. And that's where like all pain is in struggle. When you are struggling to make things fit and reconcile that don't, there's pain. And when you finally accept, okay, so I I can't get control because that is just not how life works. And I'm not magic. It, you know, it, it deflates some of that struggle and then there's less pain. Even in dealing with things that are painful. It's, it's one of those like, if you had to boil down the 10, you know, t- uh, most, maybe even the five most important lessons of being a human, it's, it's, it's in there. And the equation I learned in recovery was, um, pain times resistance equals struggle. It's the resistance that causes yes. so much suffering. Yes. Resistance or struggle, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. That's where the, that's where the pain is. That's what wears you down. What is the acceptance process for you like now? I mean, because this never ends. You don't accept and you're done. No, it never ends. No, it's it's repetitive. It is it is literally a daily process of me getting up in the morning and lying in my bed. And first I do the things I'm grateful for. And then I repeat to myself, I have very little control over what's happening today. <laughs> Which yeah. sounds like a, almost counterintuitive, like, well, you're not taking agency over your life if you remind yourself every morning that you have very little control. But for me, for the particular type of personality I have, which is um, optimistic, but also highly anxious. Mm-hmm. And um, I've always, since I was little, had this sort of magical feeling of like, it's my mind that's keeping all the planes in the sky. Um, I need that reminder. Maybe other people don't, but that's the reminder I need. So much is out of my control. Don't get up and walk out of this bedroom and go try to control everybody and everything and the whole planet. That is not your job and you cannot do that. <laughs> like I need yeah. that. So it's for me, the process is just like truly a daily reminder. Mm-hmm. Did writing the book, I don't want to say help. You end up in a different place. When you start. Yes. Well, when you're making yourself communicate it, 
so that other people can understand it, you are putting yourself through the exercise of the journey. I mean, you know, mm. in a way, when you write a book about having gone through something, you've already gone through it and you're reflecting on it and you're packaging it up for other people. But in that packaging and in um, working on how you're going to articulate that journey, you are continuing to take yourself on it. So yes, I think I, I think it's yes and no. That's one of the things I loved about your book is you're so specific. You're not, there's no like hyperbolic language and just sort of generalities is very specific and that's why it reaches when you have to be really specific about the language and the the exact experience that you're having it it is transformative it's all chemical it does something in you i agree and it also sort of forces a level of honesty and self-awareness that you might be able to get away without otherwise if you know yeah. you have to articulate something accurately in order for other people to understand it and in order for the story and the world that you're building to work, mm-hmm. you can't you can't be in denial of too much. Another theme that I loved in the book was just this theme of contrast. Like that oh, we can be you. Yeah, so many things that are seemingly opposite uh, at, at the same time. Like you talked about being both anxious and cheerful. That was one of the the funnier moments in your book because I completely relate. Um <laughs> You write uh, in this the essay called Seriously, you say, my fondness for contrast isn't unique to women or Southerners, but I do think many Southern women learned it from our mamas. Do your work, earn that degree, get that promotion, and also perfect your recipe for pimento cheese. I don't know if I said that right. I've never <laughs> made did. pimento cheese. It's delicious. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've had it, but I've never made it. Curl your hair before you methodically destroy your opposing counsel in court. So just can you talk about the theme of complexity? It's one of the things that we seem to be able to least tolerate and I agree. People. Yeah. Yes. And maybe start with the story because it's so funny and real about the event that sort of kicks off that essay. Oh, the skirt. <laughs> yeah. I was at a <laughs> I was at a party. This is years ago and uh it's one of those parties where it's just all small talk because you kind of know people, but you don't really know people. And someone walked up to me and I had on this great outfit, I have to say. I had on, the, it was a skirt that was um, made of this utterly artificial substance. It was like sort of fake fur, but sort of feathers, but like really clearly was not either one. It was just a fun, you know, you how you have like certain fun outfits. You're like, this is my fun outfit. I don't yeah. feel like going to this party, but if I put this on, it's going to perk me up. So somebody walked up to me at the party and said, um, oh, aren't you cute? And I said, thank you. And and then they turned to walk away. And before they walked away, they said, of course, no one's ever going to take you seriously if you keep dressing like that. And, th- and then they just kept walking. And I, w- I was left standing there, you know, holding my plastic cup of Chardonnay going, what? what? And it was so, it stuck with me because it was, I mean, first of all, that's just a funny, the person walked away and I was like, what? what like evil villain character are you? And where did you just drop in from? Like, it was so memorable. So like, absurdly rude and funny. And also just so antithetical to kind of how I live my life. Like, why would you think that my goal in standing here is to be taken seriously? Yes. Why would anyone's primary goal in anything to be taken seriously? If you're 
It's the number one thing you're thinking about is how other people perceive you. And is it seriously? That is a miserable way to live. Mm-hmm. And clearly someone who is wearing this like rainbow fake fur, fake feather skirt isn't out to live miserably. So and it, the whole thing was very memorable, but it it sort of sent me down this uh this rabbit hole of thinking about why do I do these little, you know, wear fun outfits and do these little things that are sort of meaningless, but give me little bits of joy. And it's because I feel like in in a world that is as scary as our world is, and that has as many dark realities as our world does, why not inject as much levity and joy and simple enjoyment of little things as you can. I love contrast in everything. And I agree with you that there's not much tolerance for that anymore among people there, especially it feels like over just the last decade, the degree to which um, public discourse has become a, a, a really stratified kind of narrowing people down to very specific types you know, yep. you are left, left wing or right, right wing. You are yep. a, a monster or you are a saint. You know, no one is that simple. No issue is that simple. No human being is that simple. And the more, I feel like life is just more fun and more interesting the more we actually look at the nuance and contrast in situations and in people and see people not just as like heroes or villains. Did you read The Bright Hour? Yes. Ugh. And I love that book. I don't know if you remember this, but there's she's talking about her mother mm-hmm. and how there's two things that were true about her mom. One would be that she was very opinionated and like, I'm going to tell you how this is and what, what that person was up to. And then in the next breath, come back and say, I was wrong about that. As if it was no big deal. And I just think about that all the time. Mm -hmm. You're -hmm. allowed to do that. You're allowed to. In fact, that's the best feeling. I love being pleasantly surprised. I love when I go into a situation or meet a person or whatever, and my expectations are really low, and I think I know how it's going to go, and then I am surprisingly delighted. That's the best feeling. That's the best kind of being wrong. I totally to, agree. You know, to walk yeah. out of a movie or read a book or, or or leave a social situation and go, okay, I thought I was going to hate that. That was great. Yes, agree. Or did and you know, it's sometimes it's hard when you are very indignant about something and you have to kind of like, oh, I was wrong. <laughs> but it's also kind of great. Like I don't. It was a tiny scene. It was like tiny in that book, mm-hmm. but it stuck with me. It's I think about it all the time. You're allowed to be. You're allowed to have an opinion, and you're allowed to say, you know. I was wrong about that. My opinion was wrong. Yeah. Anyway, that was a little tangent, but um, no, I totally got the 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 theme of contrast. It's something we talk about on the show constantly. Um, You know, holding the middle ground. It's harder. That's also why we don't. Oh yes. It doesn't sell as well. Uh (laughs) It's it's a lot harder to do. um, But it's it's where you know even sobriety. Uh, one definition that I learned, from, you know, is not just like the absence of something, but the ability to savor. Yes. Like you are on that razor's edge. You're in the middle. Yep. Yep. 
and to, and to say, hold and, that space. Yeah. And to acknowledge the bothness of, of everything. At certain points, your book had me just like, oh, God, especially the parts about parenting. Like they mm-hmm. just and, – and you have this certain section about parenting a teen – a, a fem, a girl, teen, and what she will do, and how you'll interpret it, and what you, you know, the, the optimism of what do you think it's going to be like versus what it actually is, and then those heartbreaking moments. <laughs> it was just like, oh, I'm in that, yeah, and so it's heartbreaking. But then it's the totally what you what you joke about yourself being anxious and cheerful. Yeah, yeah, I am both. I, and I always, always have been. And then, you know, there are certain moments in life, obviously, where the balance tips more in one direction sure. than the other. And you see me go through that in, in bomb shelter. But I love, I love acknowledging both. So on the parenting part that I wrote in like these big words at the end of, uh, I can't remember what chapter it is, but I put the inevitable failure of being a parent. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I wrote. <laughs> That's a great title for something. <laughs> oh, because it's, it is just, there's nothing quite l- like reckoning with that to me. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's absolutely unavoidable. Yep. It's, you, there's zero ways that you are not going to mess up your kids in some way. Mm-hmm. There's, there's zero possibility rather. And you can't keep the world from impacting them. Mm-hmm. And you talk about this like all throughout. And it's like I said, it's so gratifying because it's one of the harder things for me to even feel or admit that I feel, let alone talk about. Um, but I wanted you to, I wanted to walk through just to highlight this that your son had this seizure that night, but your daughter was doing something else. Yes. And you have this gorgeous line at the end of that essay. Um, where you say you do not owe anyone your stillness or your silence, not even us. Yeah. She was awake the whole time. And we didn't figure that out until after. um, So he had a seizure around 4 a.m. And we called 911 and the ambulance came. And I rode in the ambulance with him to the hospital. And my husband stayed home because it was a weekday. And and, it seemed sensible at the time to be like, well, we've got to get our daughter to school. And so he stayed home to to get her to school and then come join us at the hospital. And uh, when he went into her room at 630 to wake her up for breakfast, she was just sitting on her bed, just cross-legged, sitting there in the dark. And he said, oh, you're up. And she said, yeah, I've been up this whole time. And she had been sitting there for over two hours mm-hmm. in the dark hearing all of this. And I, I, I think so often about what that morning must have sounded like and looked like from inside her room. Like she she must have seen the lights from the ambulance and she must have heard the guys, the EMTs running up our stairs. I mean, they were these huge <sighs> beefcake guys, you know, running up the stairs. She must have, I mean, our, where our son fell and seized is just right across the hall from her bedroom door. So he, she must have heard the, the thud and heard us finding him and calling yeah. out his name and saying, do you know who we are? Do you know who you are? And he didn't, you know, it was just to, to think of what she heard and what she must have been trying to put together on her own. And then how she must have reasoned. She was only... um about 13 at the time, just newly 13. And she was kind of going through this phase where she was watching her older brother go through adolescence 
and kind of considering how is this going? All right. It looks like adolescence involves a lot of conflict. (laughs) I'm going to see if I can do this without conflict. So, you know, in retrospect, I can look back and see her trying to be good and quiet Mm -hmm. and do what she thought people would want from her. And in that morning, that's what she was doing. She, she, she thought, I'll stay in here until someone tells me to come out because that would be the most helpful. And so we had this whole, you know, larger talk about you don't owe anyone your stillness and your silence. But also literally, if you're in the house and you see you, you hear sirens and you see lights, get out. If you <laughs> yeah. smell smoke, get up and get out. Yeah. There was so there was so much on so many levels to be learned from that morning. Yeah, and just how much that took for her, like that's a deeply ingrained coping mechanism or or just desire to be helpful. Yeah. To, and to be there. what people want. And I think about it all the time with her in particular, because she's um, she's now midway through high school, obviously, because it's a few years later, but she is an actor. She, she acts. That's her thing. And that's what she wants to do with her life. And that's what she does with every spare minute of her educational life. And so she has now for years put so much effort into being what is called for in a role mm-hmm. and becoming what a, what a character demands and what a show demands and what the audience wants. And so I, I think a lot about trying to counteract that in some way as a parent, if I can, with, right. you know, y- you can't always be what everyone else wants you to be. You have to be yourself first. So protect, you know, I'm very protective of, of protective of her and I want her to be protective of herself so that she's, you know, she doesn't just become this conduit for what, whatever anyone else wants. The world wants. Um, but you're right. I mean, the, there, there's failure baked into every phase of parenting. And I, you know, the thing that's so silly about it is you don't learn until you've been through it. Yeah. So once you've been through a phase of parenting, like once I've been through all this stuff with her, I'm like, oh, I got it. So what I need to teach her is you can't be what everybody else wants. I wish I could go back five years and tell myself that then. But you you only know by going through it. So you gain this wisdom and then you're like, well, that would have helped past me. But <laughs> right <laughs> now I've got to figure out what the next wisdom is because it keeps moving. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True, and I co-created the show with Laura. You know, we have one goal here, put something into the world that helps all of us figure out how we can have a better week. And we think that the best way to do that is to keep the pod ad-free so that all of the work goes toward making something that's useful for you instead of hustling to keep advertisers happy. And this is where you come in. TMST Plus is the membership program that helps to keep this show going. Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are super important because they help to pay for the show's production and distribution costs. It's pretty sweet, makes a difference, and you can make it happen with a one-time gift for as little as $5 or $10 or $20 a month. If your situation is such that becoming a member doesn't work, it's all good. We hope you enjoy the show, maybe share it with a friend or two, and we hope you check out the playlist that we put together every week on Spotify. Just search the playlists for Tell Me Something True. It's free, and we're thrilled that you're here. And if you could become a member, well, you can find the link in the show description. 
head over to tmstpod.com. Takes less than two minutes. And thanks. Another essay that I loved. Every time I read, every essay I I read, I was like, oh, that's my favorite, you know, and then you read the next one. Um, But investment pieces just had me rolling, laughing. Um, It's about how you try, how we try to like make things work for us that just don't Don't. work for us that we don't actually like. And yours is about like this wool sweater. I hate wool sweaters too. Yet every season I buy one because I'm like, it's so cute and I'll just wear an undershirt. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm not, I don't even have the excuse of being a cold, like being cold. I'm hot. I'm like an oven. (laughs) So it's just, uh, why do we, why do you think we resist that so hard? It seems like for me, every time I've allowed myself to just feel what I actually feel, Mm -hmm. want what I want, have the preferences I have. Get rid of what you don't want. Yeah. It's like this revolution. It can be the Mm -hmm. tiniest thing. Like finally admitting that I hate sleeves that are tight on my arms and not tight, but just even like I have this very baggy sweater on. No one can see. Like, this is fine, (laughs) but this would not be fine. I would be mad all day. I'd be hot and suffocated. Yeah. I hate dark chocolate. I just don't like it. I know you're supposed to like it. It's supposed to be great. You don't have to like it. I'll eat yours. Okay. (laughs) I'll send all mine to you that I buy thinking I should. Not a problem. That piece, actually, that, that chapter I had written separately. It was in my my little Scrivener file of random separate things I had written and didn't know what to do with. And in a, a relatively late draft of Bomb Shelter, I was sort of combing through other pieces I had to make sure there was nothing that I meant to put in there that I had like saved in the wrong file. And I found that essay, didn't know when I had written it. I was like, is this new? Is this old? When did I write this? <laughs> but I thought, you know what? This I'm, I'm, I'm pulling this into bomb shelter because it, where I placed it is sort of like three quarters of the way through. And one of the things that I'm figuring out in, in the, the bigger bomb shelter narrative is, um, so many of the things that we do as human beings to give ourselves a sense of security and safety Mm -hmm. are illusions Mm -hmm. and they're silly and they don't work. And wool sweaters, that was one of the, th- you know, one of the things like if you have, you know, wool has this image, it's like it's sturdy and it is time honored and it is not artificial and it will keep you warm and, <laughs> and you must have it. And no, it, it itches me every single time. And it's, it is where it is because we needed a moment of comic relief at that point in the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's also kind of making a point that we do have to come up with our own, security mechanisms, you know, large and small, silly and important. And the only ones that work are the ones that work for you. And the ones that work for somebody else might not work for you. Yeah. It sounds so simple and obvious. And like, you know, I'm a grown woman-ish. I'm 45. And yet I still have to admit to myself sometimes that I don't like things. Yeah. Um, But you also write about that. And I loved that uh, towards the end about you say on my 40th or grade 40th and grade 41st or 41st grade, 42nd grade, as if we're all still in school, we're all still 
you know, you, it's, it's a weird reckoning when you're a parent and you're also, you know, it's a, it feels like you're joking, like you're play acting this role and you're still totally growing up. Yeah. We're all, we're all always growing. I I borrowed that line. Actually, (laughs) I borrowed that line from myself. So I wrote a piece for the New York times a couple years ago called, I think they, they titled it, I'm so excited for 40th grade, but the whole thing was about how, you know, here I am raising people, but I still do feel very much like I am still in progress. I don't feel like I'm a fully cooked adult individual who has any answers at all. And when you get out of school and you don't have that automatic annual time to restart thing of going to the next grade, you sort of have to invent your own restart moments. And at some point along the way, when my kids were little, I sort of decided, well, if they're going to start over every August with a new school year, that's what I'm going to see as kind of my, almost like my New Year's Eve. My my new year begins when the new school year begins. And I'm going to set intentions for myself at the beginning of every school year. And they can be small. They can be things like, this is the year I finally clean out my office. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's not this year. If you can see my office behind me, um, you know, this is the year I'm going to learn to do whatever. This is the year I'm going to change a habit. That to me is really invigorating, and I enjoy giving myself that chance to start over. But I wrote a whole a whole piece about it. That's not in Bomb Shelter, but I did I did pull a couple of lines. I love it, for my and I'm going to use it. I'm going to use <laughs> this year. I will be going into 45th grade. Mm-hmm. In August, it also happens to be my 45th birthday in August. I, I I hate this question. I also love it. Like, what is next? What What do you? Because you said after after I miss you when I blink, I'm not doing essays again. I know. I, I'm right back there right now. So okay. it, it's so funny, and actually kind of comforting how cyclical my process is. And I'm much less panicked now about the fact that I don't know what I'm doing next than I was last time. Last time when I didn't know what I was doing next, I was like, well, time to hang it up. I guess Mm -hmm. I got one good book and that's it. Goodbye. Um, (laughs) And now I'm like, oh, this is the part where I think there's nothing left and I think my tank is empty and this is going to last for a few months and then something will start to bubble up. I hope that's true. Um, But thus far, the rest of the process has also been very cyclical. So I'm I'm sort of trusting and also crossing my fingers and trying to write a a little bit every day and just kind of see what I get and see where it goes. And I don't know for sure. And that uncertainty, of course, drives me insane. Don't you have the sense that you can't just write endless memoirs? I Well, yes and no. I mean, I do think... When I was at this phase last time, when I was like, I got nothing, and then I started writing Bomb Shelter, everything, almost everything that's in Bomb Shelter had already happened. It was all right there. I just wasn't seeing it, and I wasn't beginning to see a story in it. I wasn't starting to see how the pieces would go together and become this thing that people could read as a as a piece of literature and entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very possible that right now there's plenty of memoir ingredients right there in the pantry that I just need to go get. Yeah. Or it's possible that I need to live for a while. Yeah. And see see what happens next. Yeah. Yeah. I but I have I, no problem with the idea of, of serial memoirs. I I like there are a lot of serial memoirists whose books I love and I don't think there's any reason why a person should only have one or two in them. Well if you think about it, like all our lives are very 
big and rich and complicated. There's a lot going on in our lives. And when you write a memoir, you know, I think about both of my books have almost the same number of chapters, which is weird. It's, mm. it's either they both have 32 chapters or one has 31 and one has 32, but it's, it's close. It, you live this big, rich, complicated life, but then you write a book that's just, let me tell you 32 things. Yeah. You've got way more than 32 things to say. Yeah. The, the, the question and the job is to figure out which next 32 things go together in some way to tell a story or answer a question or grapple with something that's fun and entertaining to read. Yeah. But there's, you know, way more than 32 things to choose from. So true. That was one of my big misunderstandings of memoirs. Like, I'm writing about my life. No, you're actually not. You're writing about like a tiny yeah. slice. I was listening to a podcast by Rob Bell. Do you know him? Yeah. Okay. So I mean, I don't know him, know him, but uh, I know yeah, him. yeah. You're familiar. <laughs> um well before that, one of I just got back notes from my first draft of, of the current book I'm writing. And one of the things, one of the big notes that my editor said was you use a lot of other people, you use a lot of quotes in this book, a lot of other people's words. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you are hiding behind them. Um, try saying things, be, trust in your own thoughts and your own voice, mm-hmm. cut down how many quotes you're using by a third. And it was hard to read because she's totally right. Yeah. Th- this good book advice. has required, it's a different book. It's more prescriptive. It is, I'm, I'm not as comfortable writing that way mm-hmm. um, as a teacher and it required a lot of research and and i just also want to know people to know i'm serious you know that that i'm valid and that i mm-hmm. i'm not just making this stuff up but then i listened just this last week to this podcast by rob bell called quote yourself about this like you don't need to hide behind other people's words and and their thoughts like you they can inform all of that but but you don't need to do that and actually just don't. And this is very related to your book, I think, because you talk, there is a sort of sub theme of arriving into oneself, I think, and and trying to be more comfortable with that person, mm-hmm. accepting of that person, compassion of that person, of what you are and what you aren't. And you, I noticed you don't use a lot. I was like, she's very sparse with other people's words. There's a couple few times where you quote other people. And I thought, I think that's what makes part of what makes your voice so strong in the book. And that is such an interesting observation and such a, um, that's a neat story about your draft and your editor and that feedback, because I do, I I tend to agree with it. That's a a necessary step in confidence is going, all right, now, now let me, let me do my let me do my thing. Here's what I really think. Yeah. But it's, I a, think, it's a natural step along the way. That's good to know. Yeah. I think it's also, I'm a lover of words. Like I, I, I did use a lot of other people's words, not a lot, but I, a lot of poetry and things like that in 
my in We Are the Luckiest because I I love words. It's how I've always made sense of the world. So if, like there's some profound string of words that communicates, you know, or underscores it. But it's a subtle yeah. thing, you know, when you're yeah. using it to hide versus using it to to really nail something right. down. And when you're quoting, I mean, you you mentioned poetry. There are certain poetic lines that just if you're going to reference them at all, you have to quote them because they're so singular. There's there's a line in Bomb Shelter that I quoted from Ocean Vong's book on Earth, We're Briefly yes, Gorgeous. And it's and I'm gonna get it wrong, but it's like uh the eye alone in its socket is God's loneliest creation. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even know there's another one just like it two inches away. And and I was writing about loneliness and about faces and about all sorts of things. And I thought I this is that line stuck with me so much after I read it. I was like, I cannot not include this, but I also can't just refer to it without actually quoting it. So I do try to be sparing and and really intentional when I do quote somebody else, but man, I love that line. Thank you so much. I'm glad I got to meet you and uh, of course talk to you about your work. Thank you. Thank you. This is a, this is really a joy. This feels like a, this kind of conversation feels like sort of a relaxed, happy, you know, not the, breakneck crazy pace of book tour stuff. This is fun. I like this. Thank you for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, opportunities to submit questions for AMAs, and invites to join me for members-only events. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want, but it also means we're 100% reliant on you for support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member. You can do this for as little as $5 a month. I cannot stress this enough. You could make a huge difference for as little as $5. Please head on over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True. Mm-hmm.